Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth. This is Billy Peterson. I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by a couple of guests, and we have Cade Peterson from the office, and we also have Janet Van Beber. So welcome, Janet. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We appreciate you taking the time today to join us and provide us some background about you. So why don't I jump right in and ask you a little bit more about you. So for the benefit of our listeners, tell us your background and how you got involved in horse racing, because you've been involved in horse racing for quite some time. Over half my life. I, I was raised in a family of horsemen, although they were involved with different disciplines, uh, performance disciplines. And then my dad managed racing stallions, but it was, you know, on the reproductive side. And so I grew up in that environment where I had a multiple um, things that would impact my interest. And uh, I really didn't think it was going to be my career path as a kid. Um, I watched all the struggles uh, that my family went through and, and it wasn't, wasn't an easy life, particularly for a woman who wants to be a mother. Um, but when I was in college, I had the opportunity to go to Hollywood park and work at a mixed thoroughbred sale. And um, that's really where my, my love for racetrack uh, came because after that they started sending me to Kentucky and they would I became kind of a premier showman for a lot of the the agents at the time and I said hey I can do this I, I'm enough horseman I know enough about pedigrees because I've grown up in the business and um, and with the performance background I could be kind of showy and and how I presented a consignment of horses and so I started doing both bloodstock uh, bloodstock work for both thoroughbreds and quarter horses. I was really still in college when I started that and then did it after I graduated. And, uh, and then in 1992, I sold Steve Van Bever a horse and uh, he came to the Barrett sale in Southern California, the Pacific Coast Quarter Horse Racing Association's yearling sale that year. Actually, I guess it was in 91. And a year later, I was his bride. And oh. that changed the trajectory of, of what I was doing, because instead of doing bloodstock work, then I became focused on being part of the Van Bever racing team. Right. And he was, he was a trainer at that point, correct? Yes. Steve uh, was already training, had an established business in Louisiana. And once he and I married, um, we grew our business and uh, we, we branched out and I went on the road with the six horses. Our, our first champion ensued. And that was a horse called develop a plan who was uh, a QHA champion gilding in 1994. Right. Um, and I named him that because I had a theory that people don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. And I, I think all of us can relate to that. And then he he jumps up and he's our first champion. Oh, well, and, that's a great story about, especially the name too, because that's yeah. important right now. It's a, it's a fond memory for me. Um, and then, so Steve and I tra trained together, each with our own little niche in the stable until his passing in 2000. And then I trained on my own from 2001 when I took the reins till when I retired in 2012. You took over this stable. You began running your own racing stable in 2001, more out of necessity, kind of a tragedy with your life and where you were able to pick up the pieces and move forward and become 
one of the all-time greatest trainers in quarter horse racing history. So tell us a bit more about that and some of your more memorable moments as a trainer. Well, first of all, I was truly blessed. Uh, you know, I had some customers that stuck with me. Some did not, uh, but those that did were so loyal and entrusted really good horses into my care. And the first would be Taylor Fitt. Uh, and he had been world champion in 99 with Steve and I together. And then he had an off year in 2000 and I was able to bring him back and resurrect his title in 2001. And I think that did a lot to substantiate Janet Van Beber racing and validate my efforts as a horseman on my own and really helped springboard my individual career. And um, so, so that was important. And, and I, trained a large stable. I kept around a hundred head of horses in training and multiple jurisdictions. I was in Oklahoma, Louisiana, uh, Texas, California, when, when the stakes schedule determined that I go out there and it took a, a, a big team to get all of that done. My dad worked for me and, uh, I had several key employees, a fellow named Sergio Serta, who was at my farm and they were longtime employees and, and we were a family together and I couldn't have done it without them because that's what enabled me to be a successful horse trainer, but still a good mother. And that was paramount throughout the whole journey. That's awesome. After you retired from training, Janet, you eventually became the chief racing officer of AQHA, correct? That's correct. Tell us a little bit about how that transition went and what your day-to-day -day roles and tasks are as the chief racing officer. So I'll address the transition a little bit uh, first. I, I took what I call a sabbatical. And in 2012, my daughter was in eighth grade and I did not want to be on the road while she was in high school. And so um, my plan was to sell my business and take a four-year sabbatical so I could be home and do all the mom things. And, uh, you know, whether it was help fix meals during Wednesday night Bible study and not miss a basketball game and, and all of those things that, um, we had to make a lot of sacrifices while I was training. Cause I, I knew once she spread her wings and went to college that, that, that opportunity to do that would close. So I took that four year break. And then interestingly enough, the day she graduated or was to graduate, cause it was during the day and the ceremony was that evening, uh, from high school. I got the call to interview for this job and I had never contemplated a role such as this, but I had people that encouraged me to consider it because they felt with my expertise and I had done some media work. And so they knew that I would represent our association uh, well uh, in the public and then have the um, policy issues down pat from years of being a horseman that I could be an asset to our industry. And that's what I've been trying to do ever since. And when did that take place? Remind me again. I came on board at AQHA in June of 2016. 2016. And I know a lot goes into that. You just We just got done with the AQHA convention, for example. And I know you and your team are busy preparing meetings and all of the ins and outs and regulatory considerations going on. Maybe you can provide our listeners with a brief overview of what your life looks like there and what you have to do. So we have a couple hours, right? I, I can talk about it in a couple hours. Yeah, <laughs> offline, you bet. In all seriousness, there's so much more to it than I ever imagined initially. Because I thought they were bringing me on board because I was a good horseman and I had a good understanding. I'd been on the HBPA board and TQHA board, and I had some understanding of uh, the inner workings of the industry. 
but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, not only are we worried about policy, and, and I think that's my primary role where I bring value to the association is I, I have a solid understanding of what we need to be worried about and what direction we need to go. But there's also governance within the association. For instance, you mentioned we just had our, our racing um, convention our AQHA convention, which has a racing component. Well, I have to put together all those meeting materials for the racing committee meeting, the racing council meeting. My staff collaborates for the graded stakes committee meeting and, uh, and other meetings that we participate in there. And it's much more work intensive than I ever imagined. I used to scoff that if you weren't doing physical labor, it wasn't real work, right? And, um, I have a new appreciation for office jobs now because there's a lot more to it. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to make sure that you're addressing all the needs of the association, of the membership, and of the industry, and try to wrap it all up into one package. Mm-hmm. Correct. And you know, I don't know if you are like me, but after having spent most of my younger years, I say younger years now that I have gray hair, and looking back, spending so much time in the barn and just the smell of the barn and being around the horses and all of that, oftentimes I miss it when I'm cooped up in an office all day long. So I cherish the time to spend away from the office and be around horses and be around other horsemen and women and seeing what's going on. And of course, this time of year when you have all the two-year-olds and the prospective runners, most people are pretty excited about what's coming up. Hope springs eternal. It does. It does. They say you never die when you have a two-year-old. So you always have that anticipation. You want to stick around to see what's going to happen. Yep. I want to switch gears a minute and ask you from your perspective with this economy, and everyone knows that we've faced some severe hardships with regards to price increases. But from your perspective, how has that impacted the horse industry with regards to inflation and pressures that we're seeing? Has that impacted impacted members aqha in particular with price increases and how how has that all played out for you guys definitely it's impacted but i'd like to start with the good news we are coming off of a period where the state of the market is excellent arguably better than it's ever been i recently wrote an article where uh, i spoke about um, how our numbers our median and averages have nearly doubled since 2014 and that, that's fantastic news so um hopefully as we see what all of us can anticipate is going to happen to the economy in the coming weeks, months, uh, however long period, you you're, you can speak to that better than I can, um, that uh, people have prepared for that. And, and you know, they've, they've taken advantage of the good times and are prepared to weather the times that maybe aren't um, as, as lucrative. Uh, yes, we see higher expenses as an association. Yes, it's going to be reflected in, in fees. Uh, there, there's just no way to avoid it because, you know, we have to keep our lights on at AQHA just like everybody else does. Um, so uh, luckily, our registration numbers are up. Uh, the numbers of mares that were turned in on stallion breeding reports are up. And all of those things generate revenue. So that helps us as an association. Uh, putting on our events is more expensive. We're trying to be more frugal in decisions we make moving forward. For example, uh, our convention, really an expensive enterprise to put on, even with people paying for registration. Um, going to certain cities is more expensive than others. So we have altered our uh 
convention schedule in the upcoming years where we're going to stay at South Point in Las Vegas because it's much more economical, not only for us as an association, but for our members to attend. So we're making decisions like that to help um, adapt to the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like it's a common occurrence for many corporate directors and officials trying to figure out how to navigate, keep prices somewhat manageable to their members and their clients, customers on down the line. But hopefully prices of the product, like we're talking about the horses can maintain that level. And we don't have one of these booms and bust cycles like we've seen in the past. What do you think the future holds for horse racing, Janet? I'm still optimistic, uh, you know, despite what's going on in the economy. We have a history in racing where you look back at the Great Depression, and that's when Santa Anita was really in a big boom because people love to come to the races. And I think the same is true even in lesser swings that that we might be for camp, for forecasting here in the future. Um, people love to come to the horse races, and, and that gives us uh, some stability. Um, in, in addition to that, we have new enterprises that are interested in building racetracks. Uh, we had people report at our convention about the possible new entity in the Las Vegas area. We have a new entity in uh, Kentucky. We have tracks in Kansas and in Nebraska that are contemplating quarter horse racing. So uh, I'm pretty excited. Uh, our our future is looking pretty good. Uh, I think the key thing that we have to look into is engaging the next generation. And so it's not just an economic factor, but a demographic factor. And to to that end, I've been doing everything I can do to encourage young people to get involved with our association. Even Cade has just turned in an application to our racing committee, and I applaud him for that and the others like him because we need people of his generation to fall in love with our sport and keep us viable into the future. That's awesome. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Janet, what business opportunities would you say there are in horse racing and looking Looking out from an outsider's point of view, someone who's not involved like we are, how could they potentially get involved? Well, we have something called the youth racing experience that we put on, uh, our affiliates put on as a, on a regional level, and then we put on a national program during our challenge championships. And the reason we do that is to help uh, young people learn about opportunities. Uh, During the course of the program, they have backside experience and they could see what kind of uh, horsemanship things are going on, much like I did when I was in college, where I I learned about the backside and I said, oh, I'm in love with this. And, And here I am all these years later. They also get exposed to administration jobs on the front side, regulatory jobs that help govern our sport and all of those sorts of things. And I think those present potential career opportunities. If you're somebody that's already established in your career path, you can get involved as an owner and you can do it with a cheap claimer. You can go to the yearling sale and buy an expensive yearling. The, the, you can, the pendulum swings wide in investment opportunities from, from a, a less amount of dollar investment to a great amount, Uh, or you can share the liability with partners or or be a part of a syndicate, even fractional ownership. So all kinds of opportunities. And if anybody wants to learn more, all they have to do is send me an email and I'll help them however I can. While we're asking or talking about that, why don't you tell us your email? Sure. It's J Van Beber. So J V as in Victor, A N B as in boy. E, B as in boy, B as in boy, E-R, at aqha.org. Thank you for providing that 
you know, I know from my perspective, I've been involved in horse racing for a long time and I see new owners sometimes with a, come in with a big splash, you know, a lot of folks who've never been involved, quite a bit of money, sell a business and just want to try to have some enjoyment in their retirement years. And, and they jump in in a big way. And, and I think the way they do that is of course they get connected with someone who's already established that can help them along the way. And if they get connected with the right person or people makes that experience a lot more rewarding. I'm sure you can think of many people in the last five to six years who come to mind who jumped in, but even without that kind of large commitment available, I mean, large financial commitment. There are those stories that are very cool to hear. Kate just wrote an article for Speed Horse Magazine and kind of reflecting on that partnership in the thoroughbred racing world that owned the Kentucky Derby winner named Funny Side. And that was many years ago, but it was just a collection of school teachers who decided to jump in, partner up, and each pooled together not a lot of money. I can't remember what the dollar amount was. Cade probably can remember. He did all the research. I think they they paid less than ten grand a piece for that. He didn't for buy that, that horse. And he yeah. ended up earning how much? I think it was around three and a half million. Three and a half mil. A great story. I wish that uh, happened more often. I'd like to be involved in one of those partnerships. That's a good good story. You well, the other both. one I was actually going to ask you, Janet. There was one called the Girls that I wrote mm -hmm. about. I can't remember. What was the horse that they had? Old Habits. Old Habits. That's right. Old Habits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, that, that was uh, a great a nice group of return. women. Yeah. Um, so that was ladies whose husband had, had they, or, or even they in their marriage had been involved for several years. So you had uh, Walt Norp, you had Scoop Vessel's wife, Bonnie, you had, uh, I could go on and on. It was a big group of women that, that had a long historic involvement, but typically recognizes the spouse of the person who had the involvement. And they said, Hey, heck with you guys, we girls are going to get together and, and have a horse. And, mm -hmm. um, and they did. It and they marketed up. it beautifully. They had these like lips, like somebody blowing a kiss and, and, uh, they dressed in all red when he ran and he wound up being a really nice horse. And so, um, they, they had a lot of fun and they still, those, those ladies are friends of mine and they still talk about the good times they had with the girls. And we all know who they're talking about. I think there was Kathy Manji, if I remember mm -hmm. right. And Melody Nuschel, right. Uh, yep. and of course my old buddy, Dusty Stimson rode that horse, um, and not long after, he was tragically killed in a car accident. And so, you know, cherish those memories, I guess. We never know when our last day here will be. But great story, great, great information about how you can get into horse racing. I think, from my perspective, horse racing is, owning a horse is one of the most exciting things a person can do. And, and the excitement is contagious. Anyone that I've had come out to the racetrack, they, they want to know how they can get involved and how they can buy a horse. So now our cousin, Sean, who works for me as well, uh, he, he came out to Rio Doso sale a couple of years ago and he and his dad partnered up and we bought a horse together. So we haven't had any luck. So I told him he needed to do something to change his luck and get us back in the winter circle, but we're going to get there one of these days. That was a funny story because he, 
he got to bid on it. My dad was like, you go ahead and you make the call. And he looked at me after they bought it and he said, that was the biggest rush I've ever felt. And he was like shaking. <laughs> Just buying fun. the horse, Janet. And he yeah. didn't have any idea what he'd gotten himself into. <laughs> Can't even get her to win a race now. <laughs> when I trained, I, um, this is kind of a funny story and I'll make it brief, but I bought a lot of horses because I usually broke around 40 uh, yearlings uh, come in two-year-olds. And um, so I had an active involvement at the yearling sales and I worked hard and I didn't really want people to see me bidding and they take advantage of my hard work of going through and figuring out which horses interested me. So I oftentimes would get a customer to to bid for me, maybe have them on the phone. One particular year, I I chose somebody who was pretty new in the business and he got that rush that you're talking about, even though he was bidding for me. And every time <laughs> I told him no, he thought I was saying go. <laughs> and I wound up bidding against himself. And, and that was a horse I wound up keeping for myself as opposed to selling to a customer because we bought him at kind of an inflated value. And I felt badly about that. And uh, But it was, it was all about adrenaline and you can't blame somebody for being excited. And that's what yeah. we experienced on that that's day. That's great. The excitement's what gets you in there, but sometimes it pays off. Another quick story on, on going to the sale. And I know, you know, Connie Rosenthal and her late husband, Bob, you know, they've been client sellers for many years. And we were at the Los Alamitos sale a number of years ago. This was probably six years ago now. Can't remember five or six. Anyhow, we were sitting at their table and we just bought a yearling and we were talking to them about it. And then in comes a colt that Bob had liked. And he circled it in the page and he was starting to bid on it. And this colt was named powerful favorite. I remember it just like it was yesterday. He bids this horse up and it gets up to about 75,000. And Bob's like, Nope. And he's shaking his head. I'm done. So he's, he turns over to me and he's asking me about mine and the one I bought and he's thumbing through his book to see what, what we had bought and look over and there's his wife, Connie, and she's still got her hand up and she's going and she keeps bidding. And she gets the horse bought at 90,000. I'm pretty sure that was the price. And Bob startles, his eyes are big. He looks over and what are you doing? And she said, Bob, if you like that horse, we're going to buy it. So, and you know what that horse ended up doing. He ended up making them over a million dollars. And then they end up buying all of the full siblings to that horse years year after year after year. And it's been one of the most profitable ventures I think any owner has ever taken and I don't know how many millions they've they've earned, but it's a lot. They've had three millionaires, and another one that made six hundred and fifty thousand, I think. But hey, that just goes to show you. Sometimes you just don't worry about the money <laughs> mm -hmm. and go up and and not give in. There are so many levels of that story that I enjoy. Um, first of all, that while Bob was still living, and I've known them since the mid '80s, and and I think the world of them both. Um, and while Bob was still living, Connie was so much a partner in their horse business and so supportive of the dream that she jumped in at that level and, and made sure they took home or the horse that they wanted. Right. And, and then after Bob's passing, yes, they were blessed with success with Powerful Favorite, but she continued on the legacy by reinvesting in our business on her own and being met with a lot of success. And then the third chapter of that story that I really enjoy telling is that uh, 
powerful favorite. They just had pictures of him on social media where Chris O'Dell's using him as a pony horse now. So what they've done is they've they've kept this horse in a second career um, where he still had great value and had a job because horses enjoy having a job and uh, he'll be well taken care of. And uh, I, I just love hearing those stories because um, the, a lot of times the general public miss out on those opportunities to find out how much we truly love our horses, that we love them while they're in training. We love them after they're in training. And, and yeah. our industry is really good about taking care of our horses after their career is done on the racetrack. Excuse me, we're almost in the home stretch for the episode. But before we cross the finish line, I just want you to know that you can contact Billy and his team at www.petersonws.com or by visiting the show notes. Now, back to harnessing your wealth. Right. Yeah, I do think that's it's it's unfortunate that a lot of the folks that are implementing rules and regulations have this potential misperception and they they might have one instance where they heard of abuse of a horse or or a horse breaks down on the track and for some reason they believe that that's universal and that all of us all of the horsemen out there are just in this business to abuse the horse and then flip them and find another one and run them to the legs fall off and that's very far from the truth you know there's going to be bad apples in every business and in every industry and that goes wherever wherever you want to look if you want to find something bad you'll find it but for the most part, if you're paying attention, good is predominant. And I would yeah. say, I told Vince Baker last week, it was on the show. If if I had to come back as, a, as something else in this next life, it would be a, a racehorse. It would be a thoroughbred racehorse or a quarter horse uh, because I just believe they're they are well taken care of. I agree. I wish I was as well taken care of as, as a horse that's in a race barn. And I tell people often that it rivals the best spa that, that a woman could go to. Yeah, it's the truth. It is the truth. And wait, it's probably, well, it is a lot. It's more expensive than the, than a great spa. Um, I don't know the vet bills. Some of those things that I wanted to ask you about on the major issues are the trends in racing going in the right direction. And what are some of the major issues that, that we're facing as an industry today? I think there's a couple, and and I spend a lot of time working on them. Um, the first is creating deterrence for those that are seeking that unfair advantage of performance-enhancing drugs. And I use that term carefully, performance-enhancing drugs, because that's different than a controlled therapeutic drug. Mm -hmm. I'm an advocate for controlled therapeutics because I, I want to make uh, a horse comfortable and um, and I, I, I want them to enjoy life just like I may need to take an Advil or an Aleve on occasion. I realize that we need to take a less medicated horse in front of a regulatory veterinarian in order to curb the opportunity for an unsound horse to be entered into a race. I realize all that and I've signed on. But that being said, what I'm concerned about are the performance enhancing drugs. And I spend a lot of time working on that. I work with the Racing Medication Testing Consortium and some other entities uh, to try to look at emergent threats and, and help keep integrity in our sport and most importantly, protect the animal welfare of the horse. And so that's one issue. Um, I think another issue is uh, HISA, federal oversight. We're concerned about that. Um, right now, it doesn't cover quarter horses, but should it prevail through all the court battles, their intention is to eventually uh, cover quarter horses. And 
there's unintended consequences where it's going to be an economic burden to the tracks and the jurisdictions and the fact that it doesn't allow for race day medication or Lasix. Our horses are predisposed to bleeding and, and we want to protect them for that. So that's an, that's an ongoing concern that, that I'm worried about and two things I spend a lot of time working on. Right. I know that that's a big conversation in the industry right now. The folks I talk to is just so much disappointment in potential cheaters and those who are out there and I won't name names. I just think we all have some perceptions on what's going on. Cheaters usually get caught eventually. We've had a number of them in this industry and it's been going on for, I don't know, probably as long as racing has been existing. It's just unfortunate that they keep finding ways to medicate horses that's untraceable and undetectable and continue to find ways to win and and essentially take the money from those who are trying to do it the right way and on a on a fair way. So I don't know what the answers are. I know people are very frustrated, including myself, when you watch what what's going on. Um, when you're in the industry, you you get a sense of what's possible and what isn't, what's beyond reasonable for a horse to be able to do and consistently, right? With a win percentage on a trainer, 20%, 25% phenomenal. Uh, when they get up into the thirties and forties, you start raising your eyebrows. When an owner is able to do that, you're very, very leery of things being on the up and up because this is a difficult business to find, you know, to go out there and pick. I always tell my, my accountant who keeps asking me, uh, are you ever going to make a profit in this business? <laughs> and I say, you know what, let me tell you what this, what this is like. You like to golf, right? he says, yeah, I love to golf. I said, all right, I'm going to line up 500 high school students and I'm going to hand them a golf club. Now they're just in high school and I'm going to let you watch them swing that club twice. And then I want you to pick out the next master's champion. And now he finally gets it mm -hmm. because picking out the next runner, you can look at their page. You can look what mom and dad did, but you don't know what's in that horse's heart or in inside them first their capabilities until they get out there. And so that's the fun of it all is really you're trying to find the pedigree. You're trying to find the athletic athleticism and then the heart that go along with it. We're all trying to do the same thing. It's just unfortunate. Some people seem like they could walk up blindfold and pick one out and, and they'd be a stakes winner. So I know that's what we're talking about and we want to be level with what people are going to do. And that's going to keep more people in industry. Let's, Let's look at that as a long-term challenge. Agreed wholeheartedly, and I spent a lot of time working on it. I'm sure you do. Yeah, Janet, you've had a lot of success in your career and worked with a lot of very well-known horses. I asked Jeff Tebow this question. He was on the podcast last week, and he's, I, the question is, if you could go back and do anything differently, what would you do? He said, I wouldn't do anything. I'm too scared of making a mistake. So... <laughs> Curious, so if, if you have anything that you would change looking back on your life and your career. I've endured a lot of hardships uh, throughout my life. I, I just 
1995, I had a horse flip over on me. I was paralyzed, had to learn to walk again, all of that. I lost to even 2000. I, I've had I've had other things impact me that, uh, you know, if, if I were given the choice, I'd say, boy, I'd, I'd rather take a detour around that incident. But each and everything that ever happened to me wound up being a stepping stone to another opportunity. And, and I'm a faith-based person, and, and I know that um, when I approach every day that God has a plan for me, and even if there's an obstacle or something that um, might not have been my choice, the fact that it's his choice and, and he wants all things good for me in my life and winds up helping me land in a spot that's better than I could have ever imagined, I'm going to go with it. So there's, I'm, I'm with Jeff. I, there's nothing I would change because I'm, I'm going to leave it uh, with a power much higher than my own and uh, follow his lead. And that's a great so way to see. answer that. So flipping that the other side, what are some of the best things that have happened in your life and decisions that you've made, whether through the higher power or something that you just stumbled on and felt like it was just the right move at the right time? I look back at my decision. Uh, so Steve passed away in December of 2020, and so um, we're we're breaking babies at the farm, but we didn't have an ongoing meet at that time. And within a matter of days, I decided that I was going to go on with it because I, God just put it on my heart that that was the best way I was going to be able to provide for my family. And when I say my family, my dad already worked for me at that time, and then I had my daughter, and obviously it was the responsibility to do so was going to be on my shoulders and. And so sometimes I think, had I thought about that more, would I have made that decision? But no, I, I just went with it and I went with it boldly and I was tremendously blessed as a result of it. So um, that obviously was a pivotal decision in my life because um, it it changed the trajectory of everything. And I've had so many opportunities since I went on to train three champions in a row. I had Taylor fit who was just phenomenal. And, and I miss him as though he were human. Uh, he went on to represent our breed at the Kentucky horse park in their hall of champions. And I'm so honored that one of my alumni had that opportunity and he's buried there today. The next year I had Sri Kansantacha, who was world champion, actually co-world champion with Who's Leaving Who. What an honor. And then the, the third year, Panther Mountain was champion age stallion. And all three of those horses won the challenge championship three consecutive times. How awesome is that? Only this past year has that uh, been done again, and that was Dean Fry did it with danger. And the remarkable thing about Dean is he did it with one horse. I did it with three different horses. So I really applaud him for that. Probably another highlight of my career, and Billy, you're in this wind picture. Uh, in 2004, we had the uh, refrigerator handicap held during Breeders' Cup when Breeders' Cup was hosted at um, Lone Star Park. And I had the honor of winning that race. And that's the only time a quarter horse race has ever won during run during Breeders' Cup. And the fact that I got to represent our industry at such a major venue for thoroughbred racing. Um, I was, I was very proud of it and it's hangs on my wall as one of my bigger moments. I so, remember that was very cool. Yeah, it was fun. Neat experience. Mm. We're coming up with the Kentucky Derby here in May. So everybody's starting to get their picks lined out. And I know I've been asked about that already. I need to start digging into that a little bit more. But right now we're focused on quarter horses, all of us. And so looking around, seeing who's got what and where it's going to take us this year. I know you're going to be involved in a lot of those different racetracks, going to the big races, meeting with folks. 
hoping that we can get a handle on what the, some of the things that are not so up and up that I think that's sooner or later that these things all work out and take care of themselves. So the good news for horsemen is something's being done as we speak. I agree wholeheartedly. So I appreciate your time today, Janet. We're very honored to know you and to associate with you all the hard work that you do to keep this great organization going. It's a big undertaking. Thanks for your insights and your background, great stories about overcoming adversity and what to think about as things come up in life and keep moving forward and having that faith that there's something out there for all of us. I think that's well, a great takeaway. I, I work at it every day. My my sole goal in this role is to be a blessing back to the industry that's blessed me so much. And um, it, it's, it's a sh struggle sometimes. You know, I, I'm like you, Billy. Sometimes I miss the smell of the shed row. People ask me often if I miss training. And it's not so much that I miss training or maybe even miss the winter circle moments. I just miss taking it all in as, as, as my lifestyle, as part of my culture. But I strongly and firmly believe that I'm where God wants me right now because um, this is an opportunity to have uh, a positive impact. And, and I'm going to keep on in that effort and persevere and see where it leads me. And uh, I'm, I'm proud that I have an army of people behind me at, at AQHA and our AQHA Racing Committee and, and the leadership that um, they, they support what I do and, and, uh, and give me rain to to try to impact that change that you're talking about that sounds great and good luck with everything coming up this year thank you i appreciate it i want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today and i want to also remind you to follow us and send us your suggestions and comments to petersonwealthservices.com you can you can find our website and find how to connect with us there Janet's already provided her email address, so you can send her comment or ask questions about how to get involved in horse racing. Stay tuned. Follow us on Harnessing Your Wealth. Take care out there. Thank you for listening to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.